Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 4. And uh, last week, you remember, we uh, finished chapter 3. And we now know, and we should have that chapter outlined in your Bible, how that that's a great chapter on really talking about uh, the proof of our salvation, who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ, simply our ministry, what we are to do for God after God saved us, what He saved us for, and that is to be involved in ministry. And again, it's clear now that, you know, there's a work that has to go in all of our lives. When a person gets saved, they begin that process of spiritual growth, but you know, it always leads them uh, to, to, to ministry. If In discipleship, you know, I, I always tell people when you disciple somebody, we have four goals in discipleship. And those four goals are, are really, uh, you, you know, I know we have like 10 lessons in our discipleship, but you're really not finished with discipleship when you hit those 10 lessons. I always tell people that you're, you're finished with discipleship when you accomplish those four goals. And one of those goals is to obviously establish people in the Word of God. That's what we want to do. And discipleship is a basic fundamental approach to that. Second one is, is we, want to, we, want to, we want to kind of bring them into the structure of our church so they'll understand what the church is all about, understand the concept and the context of a New Testament local church and its importance. There's a lesson in there on salvation. There's a lesson in there on the local church. Third thing we want to do, we want to get them uh, to know the people in our church. And uh, part of that process is to uh, take them around and through the natural things that we do, uh, they become uh, integrated with the people who love the Lord and love the Word of God, and it's just a, a great process. The fourth and final goal in discipleship is basically to establish them when they're done in the ministry. This is why many times that when you finish discipling somebody, I'll give you somebody to disciple, and you'll take that person back through again, only you'll disciple them uh, together, and you'll let them teach some lessons, and then get them ready to, to disciple somebody else. The ministry is people, one-on-one with people, whatever that means, discipleship, in counseling, in dealing with people's lives, and just the things that we do. You'll find that everything we do around here, uh, everything that we even think about doing, it's geared for people. Uh, to try to uh, help people, reach people. We always have one goal in our life in this church, and that is to leave you better uh, than we found you and to help you with the Word of God. And, uh, you know, we saw it over and over again through our studies in chapter 3. Last week, we we saw how that uh, the job of the church is basically a threefold job for the perfecting of the saints. That's when you get your own world in order and you grow in the Word of God, and then for the work of the ministry. And that's what God saved us for. Nowhere in the Bible does God recognize uh, any child of God that's not actively involved in ministry. And then, of course, the third thing is the edifying of the body of Christ. And that's what we do. And sometimes edifying is not always pleasant, but edifying is always edifying. It helps you uh, look at yourself and to evaluate yourself, and that's always very good. Now, today we're going to start chapter 4. And this is another great chapter that, again, lays out yet another great principle or principles uh, dealing with the aspect of ministry. If you're keeping score, you should have these marked in your Bible by now. We're breaking down 2 Corinthians, our handbook on ministry, uh, basically chapter by chapter. And I showed you how that each chapter uh, is a, is a, has a, a, a theme unto itself. In chapter 1, we define the ministry in a general sense. 
So now we know that ministry is our suffering with other people going through their suffering and through our suffering through Christ helping them deal with theirs. Chapter 2, we, we saw the defining of the minister. Uh, we, we defined us, and that is our forgiving spirit that we have. Chapter 3, which we just finished, showed us the proof of uh, our ministry, and our, excuse me, the proof of everything you have in your life as a Christian is your ministry. And we saw that one. Now today, chapter 4, uh, we're going to find uh, the finding of your ministry, not in a general sense, but in a, in a personal sense. You know, how to be right in ministry. That's so important today. Uh, how to do the right kind of ministry. How to do the right things in ministry. The, the, the right way. And that, that the way that has the blessings and the power of God uh, on it. And, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, and you've heard me say this many, many times, there's a passage in the Old Testament that really illustrates uh, what I'm going to preach about today when we get into chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, I've talked about it many, many times. I've talked about it in the last couple of Thursday nights, but it's been a while since I gave you the passage on it. And I want you to look back. I think this is very important today. Look back into the Old Testament book of Haggai. And uh, we want to go to chapter 2. And I want, you to, I want to set a context today for what we're going to talk about. Because I think that uh, many, many times you've heard me talk about the parallels between the Old Testament and the church. Many times you've heard me talk about uh, the problems we have today in Christianity uh, on a global scale, uh, you know, across America. It's absolutely, um, and today you're going to get a better understanding of that. I talked to Kevin this week, Kevin Adams, and he's out of town today, and you know, you'd have to look pretty hard to find a better guy than Kevin. He's, uh, he just loves the Lord and wants to do everything that he can do. And I always enjoy my time with Kevin. And, and uh, you know, over the last couple of Sundays when we've really been kind of hitting it hard and Thursday nights, he said something to me. And it kind of, kind of like an awakening, you know, when he said it to me. Even though I knew it, it's just like kind of cold water in the face. He says, man, he says, if it's bad now uh, with all the things that you're talking about, how messed up Christianity is on a, on a scale 1 to 10, it's 110. He says, in 20 years from now, what's it going to be for me? 30 years from now, what's it going to be for me? And he says, who's going to be around to tell the truth then? I said, if it's getting worse and it can't get any worse, but it's going to get worse, what happens if Jesus doesn't come and we're around here for another 20, 30 years? I'll be gone by then. Uh, who in the world is, who is, going, to, who in the world is going, to, going to do that? And it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And I told him, I said, Kevin, I said, and it really struck a chord with me. And it kind of reaffirmed what I already knew, but sometimes you kind of get lost in everything you do. I said, Kevin, I said, you'll be the guy that will do that. And really, that's a sense of why you need to listen to what I'm talking about today. Because if Jesus doesn't come uh, 20 or 30 years from now in my lifetime, uh, and it, you, you pat, go on that thing, it's going to be you folks. When you get done with this today, and we talk about where we're at, you're going to have a better understanding. But you're going to have to, you're going to, have to be the bearers of light. And you're going to have to be the ones that in the darkness stands for the truth. And uh, it's, it's an incredible thing. I, I, I hope you don't mind if I tell this story, Donnie. I won't give any names or anything. But Donnie and I were talking at one of the deals the other day. And he's got a friend that uh, he used to they used to all play guitar with. And, and this is when Donnie was out in left field and didn't care anything about the Word of God or the ministry. He was just in it for guitar playing. And uh, the guys that were with him there were too. 
And uh, he was telling me a lot of funny stories of how that they couldn't stand the preachers preaching, you know, so they'd go in the back and play their guitars and they'd go over to the rest homes and take care of people because they didn't want to hear this goofy guy preaching and all that stuff. I'm glad you're sitting over there because I can see if you leave. now. Because <laughs> of this goofy preacher, you're going to be in trouble. Anyway, and then he said, once he got plugged into the Bible, and he did get plugged into the Bible. Once Donnie got into the book and he saw the issue on the Bible, uh, he really, he really, really got on fire. And he went back to this guy and he, he began to talk to this guy. And this guy was, you know, was just adamant, didn't want to hear it. And he stayed with it and he stayed with it and he stayed with it. And I don't remember exactly what he said was the thing that turned a corner on this guy. But this guy today now is, is on fire for uh, the Word of God. He listens to He's probably going to hear this tape at some point. He, he's read all of our books over there and he's really into it. And here's the deal. His wife hates me and hates this church. I don't know how that's possible, but, you know, the bottom line is this. It's a thing where she will not step foot in this church. He would love to be here. And so he, he now goes to these other churches that they'll go to. But the beauty in this, and, and if you're listening to this, my, this is an encouragement to you. He tears them up wherever he goes. You see, sometimes God will take a guy like that, get him on fire, and use his wife to keep him from coming here because you know what that guy's doing? He's doing and getting into places and talking to people that I can never get into and talk to. And he's tearing them up. No preacher that gets up and preaches. He holds them into accountable. I guess he, he probably drives them crazy. But you see, that's what God does. God reaches down and he gets the little guy. And he puts his word in his heart and he changes his life. In this particular case, you know, this guy will probably never come here. If you're listening to this and Donnie said you'd like to talk to me sometime and answer If you want to have a late night meeting in trench coats with dark glasses on, I will be glad to meet you at 7-Eleven down the road if that's what you need. I'll give you anything you need, son. Give you whatever you have to happen. Because I look at you as an extension of my ministry and you're out there tearing them up in places that I can never get. God does it all kinds of ways, doesn't he? But the bottom line, and what I want to get you to get out of this today, is when I talk about Haggai here, I want you to begin to see. This is probably, and I know it won't seem this way, but as far as where you go in life and what you figure out in life, this is probably the single greatest message you need to hear. I didn't say you'll ever hear, because maybe you won't hear it. But it is certainly the single greatest message you need to hear. Now, in Haggai chapter 2, here's what it says in verse 1. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jodedek, uh, the high priest, uh, and to the residue of the people, saying. Notice the word residue. Now, Haggai is a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. <coughs> This is where they go back after the 70 years captivity, but only a small remnant goes back. So the word here is residue, very important word. And uh, he says, speak unto the uh, residue of the people saying. Now the time frame here is when they're rebuilding the temple. And if you know your Bible history or anything about that, you know that uh, uh, the temple was built uh, under Solomon and it was a glorious thing. And then Israel fell into decay, and for about 600, 800 years, they went into apostasy. Finally, God came down in 606 B.C. and destroyed everything that they did, and the temple was destroyed. And then they're carried away into Babylon, the southern tribes, the northern tribes into Assyria, for a period of 70 years. Most of those people never come back. 
But in your Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and Nehemiah, there you go back. And Haggai is a contemporary of those guys. In other words, he's right during this period of time. And he's writing about this. And what the interesting thing here to me is the fact that they, here's where they rebuild the temple the second time. And what it pictures for you and for me is the state of Christianity today. Because there was a time, if you know your church history, when Bible Christianity was a great time. There was a time when, in this planet, when over three-quarters of the world uh, were one to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Hard to imagine, isn't it? A time on this planet where three-quarters of the world's population was saved and on their way to heaven. Now, I know today that probably three-quarters of the world would profess to be as Christian today, but we know where that's going. We know that that's that the fallacy of that. But now they, they've lost their glory. Now everything that Israel was and all of the glory and all of the power that they had. The great psalm on this, if you want to put it in your Bible and look at it sometime, is Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is a very long psalm, but Psalm 78 basically says, God's done with Israel. In the Bible, there's a name called Ichabod. And Ichabod is what is told is painted over the threshold of the nation of Israel. The name Ichabod or the word Ichabod simply means God has departed. And so here we are now. They're trying to get back and to do what they once did and get to their former glory. But Ichabod is on the forefront of the nation of Israel's threshold. They ain't going to have any comeback. They're, the kingdom of God is, kingdom of heaven is gone. God is finished with them at this point in time. There'll be no reawakening to the nation of Israel till Jesus Christ uh, comes back and John the Baptist heralds him here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Israel is finished at this point. Now, these Jews know what they're supposed to do. And they're rebuilding the temple because they know that the temple is absolutely vital to their relationship with God. And God is going to honor that, but Israel is done as a great nation. She's a foreign, she's held captive by a foreign power now. She may be back in the land, but only because Cyrus, king of Persia, said, you can go back. You see, from never again, never again, not even to this day, is Israel going to be free because of what they did with the Word of God. So what we see now is Ezra and Nehemiah going back. They, they rebuild the temple. And what we have here in Haggai chapter 2, and you'll find it again in chapter 6 and chapter 7 of uh, Nehemiah, Ezra, is the rededicating of that temple. And it's an incredible thing. But this is what I want you to see. Verse 2, speak now to Zerubbabel. This is this is Haggai the prophet speaking in God's place to Zerubbabel. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shutiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the, of the people, saying, Here it comes. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how we do see it now. It is not in your eyes in comparison. It is as nothing. What a tremendous verse. You know what they're saying? They're saying the problem that you guys got, you're all excited about the building of this temple, but the bottom line is it's no comparison to when God's glory was here. Israel had lost the glory of God, and now everything they did, even though it was by the book and what they should do, 
God was no longer there because they had rejected the Word of God. And when you study this thing here, you'll find that uh, back here in chapter 3 of Ezra, verse 12, the Bible says that when they dedicated this temple the second time, the old men, the ancient men, the men who knew and understood the tremendous glory uh, under Solomon at the first dedication of the temple, the Bible says they wept. They wept because they knew the comparison. They knew what was real, and now they knew what was contrived and forced that really was never going to go anywhere because of their rejection as a nation of the Word of God. When you study the compassion, oh, they're incredible. First Kings chapter 8, when Solomon dedicated it, and he did that first temple. The Bible says that they, 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 it was overlaid with gold. It was the most unbelievable building that you ever saw on the history of planet Earth. It was the place where God dwelt. It was the center part of the nation of Israel. And at that first dedication in 1 Kings chapter 8, the Bible says they dedicated 20,000 oxen. Can you imagine 20,000 alders with 20,000 oxen? The Bible says that they sacrificed 120,000 sheep. Add to that 20,000 oxen another 20,000 sheep, 120,000 sheep. I mean, everywhere you look, you saw a sacrifice to God. What a great, glorious thing that was. Ah, but in Ezra, and in Ezra, we find that on this dedication, it's 100 oxen. It's 200 rams and 400 sheep. No comparison. Now, I say that to say this. This is the problem that you have today. This will be your problem of ever 20, 30 years from now. If you don't figure it out now, this will be your problem. You have nothing to compare the real deal of what a church should be and Bible Christianity should be with what's going on today. That's the problem. None of us lived through the great Philadelphian church age. It, it ended in 1900. The residue carried all the way up to the 50s and the 60s and the 70s. But it, 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 today, it, it, Christians aren't, aren't anything like they were in the day. I, I say it many times. Uh, I don't even know what to preach on anymore. In Christianity, nothing's sin anymore. God's people get saved or say they get saved. They live their lives the way they live it. Nothing really changes. There's no conviction in their life about sin. They continue in the same old sinful way, doing the same old sinful things. And the reason why they do is because there's no comparison of what really happened back in the old days when a man got saved, his life changed. But we don't have that comparison today. It's true in churches. We go to churches today and we, we see churches and what they do and what goes on in their services and we, we think that because we have no comparison of the great Philadelphian churches, we have no comparison of the great churches that had preached the Word of God where thousands and thousands of people got saved. We, 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 we have lost all of that. So what we see today, and, and you guys growing up, and, and your kids growing up, if somebody, like Kevin asked me, doesn't get this and hold the line and simply say, look, this is real and this is not real, and then be able to go to the book. I can't even imagine the state of Christianity in another 10 years. I have a hard time imagining the state of Christianity today. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. I saw the very end of it. I actually saw churches that once started out 
believing the Bible was the Word of God back in the 40s and the 30s. That by the time the 70s came around, when I was there, they were starting that departure from the Word of God. They were starting to dump the Bible, starting to go in another direction and bring in all of the things that we see today. It was a very slow, methodical process. But if you didn't have a Bible... You didn't have an absolute standard, something that told you what was right versus what was wrong. You got caught up in it, and that's the problem today, guys. The problem today is God's people have no comparison of what's real versus what's phony. And that's the issue today. Nobody knows what a real God-honoring ministry based on the Bible uh, is anymore. And, And even worse than that, nobody cares what it is. And these are great parallels of the Old Testament and the New Testament with the nation of Israel and the church. So today, in starting chapter 4, verse 1, because this is where Paul's going, we'll go back to the Bible, our original source for all things of faith in practice, and we'll see what, based on the Bible, a real ministry, a real Bible church should be based on Paul's opening remarks in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Now, keep in mind, this is not my information. I'm just giving it to you. I didn't write this. I didn't put this in book form. I'm giving you exactly what Paul is telling the people at Corinth, what a ministry and what a church should be. And I'll tell you, when you lose your Bible, one of the great things the Bible does for us, it gives us God's opinion in an absolute form of what is right and what is wrong. And when you lose that, or that is altered or changed as it is today, then you lose the ability to make spiritual judgments. And the Bible says over there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that he that is spiritual judgeth all things. So I want to read now, going back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I want to read uh, Paul's opening verses here, and then I want to talk to you about it, and may I say this to you. If you learn, you need to learn this. You need to come out of here today, and I know you won't get it all today, but you need to really begin to put together that you get what is real, that you learn how to use the Bible to find out what is real and what is not, because there's a lot of things out there in God's name. There's a lot of services going on this morning in God's name, and I know when you start to preach like this, somebody thinks that you just got an axe to grind. I got no axe to grind. I'm just preaching the Bible today to you. And I'm showing you that back in Haggai, chapter 2, they have the same problem that we got today. They had no comparison of what the real deal was. Now, he says here in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Now, Father, we do thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we love you. We ask you to take this time today. And, Lord, I know that most people won't get this today. And, Lord, it would be too much to ask and too much to hope that they all would. Uh, But, Lord, I pray that if just one or two get it, if just three or four get it, if just four or five people understand and begin to see this thing, that 10, 15, 20 years from now, that somebody will keep the lights on, that somebody will still have the truth, that, that Lord, I can shed into them uh, what was shed into me to show them what is real and what is not. And, and more importantly, Lord, how to go to the Bible to figure out what is real and what is not. And, Lord, we'll just thank you and praise you now in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. 
You know, when you get into counseling people, you're going to hear this all the time. When people start not to do, want to do what's right, they'll always do this. And many, many people think that if you haven't been uh, gone through what they're gone through, that you can't really help them. And you're going to start to deal with people at some point in time, and that person, when they start to want to balk it a little bit or don't want to do what's right, they're going to basically simply say, well, because they don't want to hear what you got to say, they're going to turn the tables on you, and they're going to basically say, well, you know what? You know, until you go through what I went through, you know, you really don't know what I'm going through. And that's a nice smoke screen, but the truth of the matter is, if I had to go through every problem that you have for me to be able to help you, you know what a basket case I would be? I mean, when you think about it, that's one of the most ridiculous statements that everybody can make. I don't have to go through your problem to know how to help you. I just got to know the biblical principles that will get you out of the problem that you're in. It comes back to understanding what the Bible says in biblical principle. My point is this. You don't have to get into a time machine to go back to the Philadelphian church age to find out what a real church is. You don't have to go back to, with me in the 60s and the 70s to see the great men who were the last of the great men and, and, and figure it out. You don't have to do that. If you just learn the principles of the Bible and learn to use that Bible to show you what is real and what is not real, and you're going to get a good education today. It'll, it, it's all you need. You don't have to go through what somebody goes through to be able to help them. You've got to know the biblical principles involved to help them. And, uh, and it's just that simple. You know, everybody here has the, has the potential of being a real screw-up in your life. The only thing that will keep you from being that screw-up is what you do with the biblical principles. Once you use those biblical principles, then you find yourself in other scenarios, then you just use those principles to help the person that's in it. That's basic Bible counseling. Well, it's the same way with what I'm talking about to you this morning. And this is why you need to learn these things. Now, in this chapter, we have... <clears throat> Have, uh, we have the ministry here uh, in two aspects. And it's been broken down in two sections, and these sections are very important. The first, and we're only going to get to one of them today, but the first one is the doctrinal section. And the second one is the practical section. The doctrinal section will be dealing with, when Paul opens this up, is dealing with the Bible and what your standing is on it as far as you're teaching it, you're holding to it, and what you're doing with it as a minister, as a pastor, or as a church. And you remember there, he said in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry. And then he's going to tell us something about that ministry. Okay, we have a ministry here. Our church is a ministry, so it works for churches. I'm a pastor. This is my ministry, so it works for pastors. I'm trying to get you to minister the Word of God, so you're a minister, you have part of my ministry, so it fits into your world. The second one is the practical, and that is what a ministry should be in dealing with people uh, uh, on how to effectively do uh, what God wants us to do. How do you, their personal accountability, the local church, uh, the, how God structures that, and the application of ministry. And uh, basically, all ministry, when you want to define it in its basic form, simply comes into these two aspects. You're going to have the doctrinal, that'll be your stand on the Bible and what you do with it and how you minister the Word of God, either you do or you don't. The second will be the practical. How you deal with people. How do you, how's your church, what is its approach to people? When people join your church, how does people interact? How does that thing work? Those are the two aspects. But we'll only get to the doctrinal today. Now look at verse 1. And here's something I want you to see before we really jump into the meat of this. 
He says, therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. Now, that's a great way to start this passage off. And I want you to notice our word there that I always tell you to watch. It's the word, therefore. Okay? That's a very important word. Whenever you see a chapter opening up with the word, therefore, it always means because of what he just said in the preceding chapter. And what he's saying here, the word ministry in verse 1, therefore, is the same ministry talked about back in chapter 3. So you want to put a little note there, and I always underline and put in yellow the therefores in my Bible, or the wherewithal, or whatever, those things that are always connecting words to the next chapter. It's always a key. Here's what he's saying. God wants to bestow his mercy on unsaved people, sinners in general. This is what he's saying. And it, we know now from chapter 3 that the ministry, our job is uh, through all of chapter 3 we learn, your face-to-face relationship with God. We're ministers of light. We're ministers of life. We have the glory of God written in the epistle of our heart, the read of all men, all of that stuff. Your job and my job in ministry is to get that mercy to them uh, through our ministry. Bible talks about us being able ministers. You see, we are, we are the working process by God's design to get light, life, and now mercy to people who need it. And uh, what he's saying here is, therefore, as we have received mercy, you got it, I got it when we got saved. He's saying, as we have received mercy, he said, faint not. He's saying, make sure that what you do with your life, you get God's mercy, then you, by getting it, you get it to other people. He's saying, don't take God's mercy and then just quit. That's what fainting means. He's saying, as we ha- therefore, as we have received mercy, he's saying, you give that mercy to other people. You and I are the conduit of that mercy. See how that works? God could have done it any other way. God decided that he was going to dispense his mercy to people through you and me involved in ministry. That's how they get light. That's how they get saved. That's how they get light. That's how they get the, all the things of God. And that's how they get mercy. God just didn't put mercy out like a raindrops that hits everybody and you get God's mercy. God's mercy is channeled. And it's channeled through a New Testament local church, which is God's structure. And then within that structure, men and women like yourself who decide to become able ministers, who put all of the things in your life, perfecting the saints for the work of the ministry and the edifying the body of Christ. And then you allow yourself to be that conduit pipe, so to speak, that allows God's mercy to flow through you and go to other people. What he's simply saying there is, hey, if you got mercy, don't faint. Don't you quit now. Your job is, once you got the mercy, is to give that mercy to other people as you minister to them. And again, what can I say? It puts us right on the bullseye. It puts us in right what we talked about last week. How so many of God's people deceive themselves. You know, I've read a lot of books in my life. I think that you, you, you have to read a lot of material, I think, just to... Uh, keep up with everything, and it's probably a great asset. If you ever, most people don't like to read, but it's a great asset. I think probably the, one of the most intriguing books I ever read in my life, and I don't think this guy was a Christian, but it certainly has always kept in my mind that I never forgot it. And talking about uh, in ministry and deceiving ourselves, uh, this book, anytime I think about that in the judgment seat of Christ, this book comes up. And it's the book that probably most of you read in school, The Emperor's New Clothes. And that's a book, if you're not familiar with it, where the king uh, uh, wanted a special suit of clothes. And a tailor got him to believe that the clothes that he made were the most beautiful clothes that he could ever have. And in reality, 
it wasn't any clothes. The guy was stark naked. But everybody, that everybody had convinced him that the clothes that he had on, which were no clothes, were beautiful. And uh, the tailor said, Maya, and the king deceived himself into thinking that he had clothes on when he was naked. And everywhere he went, everywhere he went, because he was the king, and people were afraid of the king's wrath, once the story picked up, nobody wanted to buck the system and cause a problem with the king, like cost you your head. So everybody got on board and started to tell how beautiful uh, he was. Now he's, he's, he's jaybird naked here. And he's walking around town, going to court, going to these things, and he got no clothes on. And, uh, and, and everybody is talking to him how beautiful his raiment is and what a great tailor he has and how wonderful he looks. And he's strutting around like he's got the most $15 million tuxedo on with a robe and a crown, and he's naked. Finally, it took one little kid out of the mouth of babes if I were been perfected. When he's walking right down in front of everybody and everybody's playing the game, one little kid says, King's naked. He got no clothes on. And it was the great reality shock that everybody gasped. But you see, everybody was afraid to say anything except one little kid. And I think that that speaks to the honesty of little kids. You see, Mom and dad will deceive themselves. They'll deceive others. But a thing I love about little kids is what you see is what you get. They'll tell you the truth even if it hurts. It's hard to get them. They haven't learned. You've got to learn to be dishonest. It doesn't come with little children. They're pure. That's why Jesus said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. That's why the great professional apostles didn't want the kids to get around him because they had dirty little sticky fingers and they all had white robes on and they didn't want to get fingerprints on it. And they kind of kept them back. They wanted the big important people to come. And Jesus said, uh-uh, suffer the little children to come unto me. Little children in the Bible are a great study. You know why? Because they're pure. They're open. They're honest. What you see is what you get. They haven't learned to be crafty. They haven't learned to be conniving yet. They, they, what they, they'll just shoot out of their mouth what they see. And in this story of the emperor's new clothes, it reminds me every time. Every time I think about it, every time I hear somebody preach on the judgment seat of Christ, where we know the Bible says that some of God's people are going to be naked because they've deceived themselves. Bring me back to that story. And it takes some little guy to get up in the pulpit and said, you think you're all clothed up here today? I got news for you. You're naked. And if Jesus Christ came today, you'd be naked. And people don't want to hear it. The king didn't want to hear it. But what are you going to do, kill a little kid? <laughs> I think they did in the next book. Anyway, <clears throat> we deceive ourselves. Now, we as God's people can actually prevent people from getting that mercy by not letting God use us and give his mercy to them through us. I told you a while back here, I said there's some things that absolutely horrendously scare me in the Bible. Uh, there's things in the Bible that just absolutely would keep me up at night if I dwell on them. And uh, I, I told you before, you know, you don't teach all the Bible you know. Scary, some scary stuff in there. And I, I think that it, it's absolutely, if, if we saw the Bible uh, as it is, and I think God masks some of it from us, rest of us don't really care, but God, God, God will show you some things that I know in my life, he's shown me some things that, that boy, I just, it, it just unnerved me. I, one of the things that I saw years ago was back there in Job chapter 26 where it said, uh, he, he asked the six questions, and what I, I've talked to you, I've preached to them many, many times. I believe those are the six questions God's going to ask at the judgment seat of Christ. 
I've had preached that message and guys come up and these guys would say, I think you're all wrong with that. I'd hug them to death. I'd say, boy, I hope you're right. You won't get no argument out of me, but I don't think I'm wrong on it. One of those questions down there, and I hate when the Bible does this because I know I'm in for something when it does this. It says down there, one of those questions, who hast thou, to whom hast thou uttered words? Now, I'm telling you right now, the way he said that, the way he laid that out, you better stop and think about what you speak and what you say to people and the words you say. I read a study this week that 75% of what we talk about is all about ourselves on a daily basis. 75% of what we talk about is about ourselves. You know what I think? Honest to God. You know what I think? I think that that Bible says the judgment seat of Christ is the terror of the Lord. You see, we get the idea we get up there, it's just going to be a little slap on the wrist. We get the idea we're going to be up there, God just going to wag his finger at us. That's what we think. Truth of the matter is, if you really understand what you got here, I guarantee you, I believe it. I don't want to believe it, but I believe it because of the way he said it, to whom hast thou uttered words. I believe that we stand there before God. I know what my inclination is going to be, and I know what yours is going to be. Defend yourself. Well, I don't know a better way to defend yourself than just to let the truth come out. You know what God's going to do? He's going to have every word you ever said come swirling in there. Einstein said something, and it's true. He said, when we say something, it moves out in space, and it keeps on going. And he said, literally, if you got into a rocket ship and can travel the speed of sound, uh, the speed of light, you'd get out there. He said, you could catch up and hear the words of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. Well, if that's true, and everything I'm saying, everything you're saying is moving out, where's it going? Got to go somewhere. You think it's just moving out through space and some alien will find it someplace? If it's going out and never stopping, where does it wind up? Well, if we know our Bible, I know where it winds up. I don't have any delusions about it. It's going to wind up in the judgment seat of Christ. It's just about the time you and I are going to get up there and open our mouth and start talking about everything and defend ourselves of what we did when we were asked the question, to whom has thou uttered words? And we got our little list of everybody we did. You know what's going to happen? Those words are going to come right rolling in there and going to fill up the categories. And my God, it's going to be fact out how much we really said about the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? If we would ask you today or you think about it yourself, we always pat ourselves on the back and think we're really doing good. I guarantee you, if you had a list yesterday of every word you said, how many was about the ball game, how many was about this, how many was about that, and how many was about the Lord, we'd all commit suicide this afternoon. Now add that to a 30, 30, 40, 50, 60 year lifespan. Now when you stand up at the judgment of Christ, or I stand up there and I begin to open my mouth and God says, you don't need to say anything, Bob. And those words just come right in there and everybody gets to see and hear exactly the words that I spoke how many were spoken about the things, myself, other people, and how many were spoken about him? Now, you may not believe that. I don't care. That scares the fire out of me. I know there's something behind 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, that says the judgment seat of Christ is the terror of the Lord. It's the day that God reveals the secrets of men by my gospel, the Bible says. And I'm telling you what, it's not called the day of Jesus Christ for nothing. Because that's who we're supposed to be talking about. We'll find out in that day if we talked about that day or him or not. I'll tell you something else. It scares me to death. I'll tell you something else. I've never, in all the history of the world, and I've been around the world a couple of times, I, out of all the history of my travels and the history of studying history, from the ancient times, I've never seen a piece of money that didn't have a head on it. Somebody's inscription. 
It might be Constantine. It might be Caesar. It might be Titus. It might be this. It might be that. In our world, it's Abraham Lincoln, Ben Franklin, and whoever else is on him. George Washington. And I'm telling you what. I, I know God. I know the way God works. I know how God will take us in our deception as we deceive ourselves, as we decide to deceive him. And I'm telling you right now, the German seed of Christ, after the words all come through and God asks you and starts to talk about what you did for the ministry and how you fervored the ministry after he gave you the job that he gave you, he's given you the everything you've got, everything you have. If you're saved, he gave for you, for him, for ministry, and in that Every dime you ever had, every nickel you ever had, every dollar you ever floated, every $10 bill, every $50 bill you ever had rolls up at your feet and the mouth, the head on that thing speaks out and tells everybody on planet Earth what it was spent for. There are some of God's people that have spent more money on your lawn than you have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't you know that's going to be a day? I dare to say some of God's people have spent more money on dog food than they have the furtherance of the gospel. Don't you know that's going to be it? Those are the things that scare me. I don't preach those things. But boy, that scares the fire out of me. Now let me just take it one step further. I believe that God has a plan for, for everybody once you get saved. What if, that, what if in your life and my life, once you finally trust Christ, your own personal Savior, God's got a list of people that he wants you to accomplish something with in your life? I don't believe it's any accident you're here. I believe that God orchestrated every event in your life, every circumstance, good, bad, or indifferent, because God wanted you in this church and brought you here. And I believe there's absolutely no accident that God has brought any, everybody that is a member of this church here, but he's brought you here for one purpose. It's the purpose of ministry. What if God had a list of everybody in your life he wanted you to, he wanted you to have an impact on? I'm not saying everybody had to get saved. But we now know we're conduits of light. We're conduits of life. We're conduits of God's mercy. We're epistle written on a heart read of all men. God saved you for a reason. He saved you for a purpose. And he put every circumstance in your life and my life that we might accomplish that. You see, we get sidetracked. We think, well, my career, you know, I'm a truck driver or I do this or I'm a cook or I, I'm a secretary or I do this or I do that. That's what God, God no, no, that's, that's what God gave you that you might be able to support yourself in ministry and support the church where he has put you to carry out being the conduit of God's grace to people and didn't want you to faint after you got it. Some of you are dead fainted out on your feet, man. That's scary. These things scare me. I'm just telling you. There's things in there that just scare me to death. The fact that we as God's people could actually prevent people from getting that mercy. I believe that God, from the moment you get saved, maybe even before, I don't know, but I certainly believe once you get saved, He has orchestrated your life and put every event in your life, bad thing, good thing, the person in your life, to get you where He wants you to be, to do what you want to do. But then all, the thing that always makes the evening factor, God also gave you and me a free will. And some of you say, yes, God, I will. And some of you say, no, thank you, Lord, I won't. Scares the death out of me. Scares the, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm just being honest. This is a great opening to this chapter. It takes us right back to our theme, the ministry and the indifference of God's people 
and a disastrous state of the church of Jesus Christ today. Now, the first of these two aspects that he lays out is, is found in verse 2. And there's three parts to this. He says, this will be, I mean, this will be the doctrinal aspect, as I said. He says in verse 2, but, uh, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Now, there's three things in there, and boy, they are killers. They kill us. It doesn't take long when you get into the Bible to see what the real issues are with us and churches today. That mirror, mirror on the wall will kill you every time. This is why men don't like to read it. We studied that last week. Three key areas. Now, you want to learn what the real deal is? Go to the Bible. You want to find out what the real aspect of what a real church should be, what real Christians should be? You want to be able to look around you today and be able to tell what is real and what is phony? Get back to the Bible. Get back to the Bible. And three key areas in our ministry here, you can put the spotlight right on us and what we should be doing with the book and the motive behind what we do with it. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 says, my, my, what a great verse. It says, neither is there any creature that not manifested in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him of whom which we have to do. There is any greater verse, truer words in the Bible than God sees everything where we're at. And you want to find out what is real, whether it be a church in Christianity today or whatever it may be, the book is telling you. And this is what he's telling you. You want to know what real ministry is? He says, therefore, dearly beloved, Having this ministry, you want to find out what a real ministry is and what it shouldn't be? I'll give you three things it shouldn't be. The first thing he says, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonor. Now, keep in mind Haggai chapter 2, the comparison. Now, some of you older people have been around a little longer. Some of you younger people, this is where you could certainly chime in today. Most of you older guys have been around in lots of churches. You've seen this. But there's a lot of dishonest things that go on in the ministry and churches today in the name of God. A lot of it has to do with political stuff. Churches are notoriously political. I remember years ago when I was at a church where the pastor was one of the big guys in the Baptist Bible Fellowship. And there's a number of fellowships out there and they're all the same, corrupt. And I remember when they were trying to find the, trying to find the a president for a Baptist Bible College down in Springfield. And they were trying to, uh, and they always picked the pastors. And they always picked the pastors. And it was, a, it was like becoming president of the United States. Very prestigious. And they were talking about and praying about, God, give us the right man. Give us the right man. I'll never forget. I just happened to be working for a guy back then who was very big into it. And he was laughing at the whole process. Here was a guy over here that was calling pastors to vote for him. They all were saying, yeah, we'll vote for you. And then they were all calling their buddies. They don't vote for him. We want to get this guy. And it was the, and, and at the end of the day, when they find their father coronation service, they all get up there with a the hypocrisy of getting up there and saying, look what God did. God didn't do nothing. There's a lot of dishonesty that goes on in churches today. A lot of it. A lot of it. We live in the Laodicean church period. If you know anything about the Bible at all, you know that that is the, that is the worst period of time the church has ever seen. It started around 1900 and it will run up to the rapture of the church. And you and I are smack dab at the end of it. And it is everything you can see around you that is wrong can go back to that. But we want to go a little deeper on it than that. A little deeper than that. 
Churches and ministries follow the philosophy laid out in the book of Ecclesiastes. A couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, somebody asked a question about Ecclesiastes and asked about the, the, some different philosophies that he lays out in there uh, from a worldly standpoint. In chapter 3, verse 26, uh, Solomon goes through and lays out what we know as pragmatism. The pragmatic approach to life has nothing to do with the Bible. Solomon wasn't saying this is biblical. He's saying this is what the world does and this is how it's wrong from what the Bible says. But churches and ministry today follow the philosophy laid out all the way back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 26, the pragmatic approach to life. Now, if you don't know what the pragmatic approach to life is, I'll make it very simple for you. It simply means the end justifies the means. That whatever you do to accomplish an end is okay as long as the end gets accomplished. And they've gotten the idea that, that that's how they operate. When you go to churches today, and if you go to another church, go back and ask your pastor. Just set him up. Just ask him, what is the most important thing for the church to do? The idea across Christianity today is that the most important thing to do is to win souls. Now, I know the moment I say that, probably some of you out there are saying, well, what's wrong with that? That sounds pretty important to me. I didn't say it wasn't important. You're not listening very well. I'm saying the number one thing to have the church has to do in the mindset of Christianity today is to win people to Christ. And when that becomes the number one thing you do, then you know what happens? You fall into that pragmatic approach, and this is what churches have today. The end, winning people to Christ, justifies the means. So whatever you do is okay as long as you get people saved. You see where that thing goes? Now, I'm going to set you straight. I'm going to set you straight. The job of the church is not to win people to Christ. That's not its number one goal. That's God's job is to win them to Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job is to win them to Christ. The church's job, number one, is not to win anybody to Christ, though the church should have people saved. But the number one format of this church will never be to get people saved. The number one format of this church will to be proclaim the truth. Protect the truth. Put out the truth. Who gives a flip if you win 10,000 people to Christ if you lost the truth? The Bible says it's not soul winning that sets you free. It's the truth that sets you free. You lose the truth, you lost it. You lost it. You lose the truth, and man, I'm telling you what, it all breaks down. Kevin asked me the other day, he said, man, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'll tell you what will happen. You're going to have to keep the preservation of God's truth. You have the truth, the rest will take care of itself. You don't have the truth, well, you'll see what happens. A lot of dishonest things go on in churches today. Once you go down that pragmatic road, once you go down the process that the end justifies the means, and you no longer think that the, the truth of God's word is, is, is relevant anymore or it's important anymore, then you adopt a philosophical approach to ministry. And that philosophical approach based on pragmatism that the end justifies the means will produce a ministry that is based on the work of man and the flesh to reach people and not God or the word of God. Let me show you. Now, I don't know where else to start with this, so I'll just start. And I know some of you won't be happy about this, but I'm not here to make you happy today. I am sorry. The concept of big, glamorous, beautiful churches. Now, I know some of you are embarrassed about this. 
I, I mean, I know, I know, and I hear it all the time. I was someplace the other day, uh, just yesterday, and somebody asked me, uh, aren't you meeting in the basement of that place over there? And I said, uh, yeah, we are. And he says, do you ever have the desire to maybe get a real church? I said, you ever have the desire to get a real Bible? He didn't. And he was sorry he ever asked me anything about it. Now, I'm not saying we'll be here for the rest of our lives. But I will guarantee you will never spend $60 million and put everybody in hock to build some mausoleum. We'll never spend $100 million, probably never spend $30 million to build some monument to man. We'll never have the stained glass windows. We'll never have the plush carpet, though this is pretty plush, and some of you are trying to change the color by what you spill on it. I wish you'd all spill the same thing. The idea of a $200,000 sound system, a lighting system that would rival a movie set, TV cameras, food courts, Starbucks, I mean racquetball courts, McDonald's, health clubs, everything to appeal to the eye and the flesh. You know what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 that the world is? The world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. You know what that is? That's almost every New Testament church you find out today. Lust of the eyes, oh man, look how big we are. Lust of the flesh, I mean the smoke and mirrors and our music program is great and, and, and the pride of life. Look at us. Now, you think I'm just picking on that in just a minute, and I want you to think that because in a minute, I'm going to take every stitch of clothes you got off and show the world how stupid you really are. I don't know how I do that by taking your clothes off, but it, you figure it out. We'll all get a good laugh anyhow. <clears throat> you see, now, the church now appears. Uh, it appeals not to the soul with the word of God, but rather the sight and the sound. That represents the flesh. And my friend, this is, this is dishonesty in the ministry. Some of the greatest revivals you ever saw in your life. Some of the greatest ever moving of the Holy Spirit of God you ever saw in your life took place without even a church building. But that was a long time ago. That's before we got into the pragmatic approach to ministry. That's before we adopted this, uh, 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 this pseudo-philosophy uh, here that the end justifies the means. They justify what they do by saying, well, look, <clears throat> the bigger and the more beautiful and the glamorous it is, the more spectacular the music, the bigger the praise bands and the orchestras, the more we have smoke and lights, the more people feel God's presence, we create a mood, as one pastor told me, and we want to reach people. Kind of like, if we build it, they'll all come, mindset. In other words, the end, reaching people, will justify the means of everything we do. Now that, my friend, is what is called as the pragmatic approach to life. That damnable heresy was not taught by Christ. It was not taught by Paul. It was not taught by any man in the Bible. That pragmatic approach at the end justifies the means comes from Kant, comes from Hegel, comes from Bazona, comes from Friesbach. When Thomas Paine, the great atheist, wrote his uh, great thing, The Age of Reason, it was a get around the Bible and the Word of God and to tell everybody through the German rationalists and the British deists 
that the Bible was no good, that man was his own God, and whatever we do, as long as the end is the result, is okay to do. That's where it came from. Will Durant wrote a book. He was an unsaved historian. He wrote like 14, I don't know, maybe 15 volumes on the history of the world. <clears throat> One of his books was called The Age of Enlightenment. Good. Allow me to enlighten you this morning. Now, we're going to go back to the Bible. Now, I know that, <clears throat> that uh, I can be looked at as being old-fashioned, not modern and not contemporary. I understand that. And I know that somebody would say, well, what's his deal today, you know? I mean, uh, somebody wants to have a big church. Uh, nothing, nothing if you don't understand the comparison between what a real church is. Nothing at all. My job here is not to convince you because some of you will never be convinced. My job is to take the ones who are still pliable and want to learn and understand what the real deal is. So down the line, 15, 20 years, if Jesus doesn't come, by God, somebody might hold up the light. That's all I'm looking for. And I guarantee you, I'll be an embarrassment to some of you. Some of you right now, you're thinking, uh, you know, if I could get out of this church, you know, my wife or my girlfriend or whatever that got me here today, but boy, I know where I'd like to go. Yeah, I know where you'd like to go too. We get this idea that the bigger, the better, the beautiful, that's how we reach people. Hey, I go back to the Bible, John 12, 32. Jesus said, remember him? If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto me. He didn't, I didn't read anything in there about a big building. Amen. Sound system. Smoke and mirrors. He just said, get in that pulpit and lift up Jesus. Now, I know you've never saw it because you never look up. You look down. But you walk through that door back there. You'll see I had painted when we started this church a verse out of the Gospels. And it simply says, everybody that preaches here, I look at it every time before I come in. You know what it says? Sir. We would see Jesus. Because if you lift up him, the rest takes care of itself. Think how much money we'd all save. But that's not what it's about. <clears throat> now, I have a pattern to what I do, or maybe a better way to say it, a method to my madness. <clears throat> but just bear with me. You tell me. You tell me. When we're done here, I'm going to ask the question. And I, if I get enough guts, I may just start right around here and ask every one of you. But you tell me, <clears throat> big beautiful buildings. He says, denounce the hidden things of dishonesty. Okay, let me ask you a question. <clears throat> In the Old Testament, <clears throat> did you ever study the Old Testament tabernacle? Forty years uh, wandering through the wilderness of sin. And I know people laugh at our church. I know there's people that don't, that don't think this is the real church, but that's okay. I laugh at you, and I don't think you're a real Christian, so it's tit for tat. <laughs> but at the end of the day, my friend, let me show you what the Bible says. And I know, I'm not talking to you, I know if you're listening to this, and you're on this thing, and you're one of these big boys with the big toys, I understand you'll never get this, but that's okay. Did you ever study the three stages of the tabernacle in the Bible? Of course you didn't. I, know, I guarantee you didn't. You say, how do you know? Because if you did, you wouldn't do the dishonest things you do in how you build a church and what you portray as ministry. Nothing has changed. I told you when we started around 1900 with a new, new neo-orthodox movement or the neo-orthodox movement. It was a movement to try to bring the Bible down to man. 
change everything which in the Bible to fit society as it changed. And that's exactly, exactly what Baptist churches have done today. They, they went after the sight line. They went after the flesh. They get people up there. Everything is about how beautiful it is and all this and all that and all that. Guy asked me the other day. He said, do you ever, you ever same guy, do you ever think you're going to have a real church? And I said, why? I said, what is the church? And boy, did he stop on that. And I don't know if he stopped because he was just a little bit smart or he was just really stupid. Because either way he went, I had him. Because the moment he tells me the church is the building, I'm going to clobber him. And then if he tells me the church is not the building, I'm still going to clobber him. So he said nothing. <laughs> Reminded me of these, all these court cases they have with the, with the Congress. Sure, my lawyers advised me to take the Fifth Amendment so I may not incriminate myself. He was smart. He was smart. Ever study it? When Solomon does that temple back there in Kings, wow, what a thing that is. When Solomon builds the temple, David's not allowed to build a temple. You ever ask yourself why? You ever ask yourself why the temple was built? You say because they got in the land. Hey, they were in the land for almost 800 years before Solomon built it. What was the deal? And when Solomon builds that temple, that's the place, the central of worship. And when they built that, that is a picture of the ministry. And the ministry is a picture of our church and what we're to minister to people. Grace, mercy, life, light. When Solomon built that, he built that and it was the most spectacular thing overlaid with gold. It was unbelievable. There's never been an architectural project that has ever rivaled it. It is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. And when he came to that point and he built that thing, it was wonderful. You ever wonder why David didn't build it? Bible says that David didn't build it because he was a man of war. Can we take it one step further than that? David didn't build it because he was a man of war simply because of the fact that there was no temple going to be built as long as the enemies of Israel were still in Israel's borders. So you know what David did? David went in and wiped out for 40 years the last of the enemies. He got out of the Jebusites. He got rid of the Philistines. He killed everybody that was left. And when David was done in his life, there were no enemies left within the borders of the nation of Israel. And that allowed Solomon to come down and build it. And for 40 years of Solomon, there's no war. And for 40 years of David, there's nothing but conflict. Then you have the tabernacle before that. That's when it's wandering for 40 years. Ever notice that thing? 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years under David, 40 years under Solomon. It's a pretty good study. And for that 40 years, they wandered, and it had no permanent home. It had no permanent place that it was to hang itself. And I guarantee you, if you would have walked out there, and you would have walked back in that time, and you would have saw the tabernacle of God, that was Israel's glory and God's glory, and that God gave them when they pitched that tent, if you'd have walked down there some night, some day, some morning, and you'd have said, oh, I'm going to see the tent of God, I'm going to see the glory of God, you'd have walked right past it eight or nine times before somebody told you where it was. You know why? Because it looked like any old used Army Command tent you ever saw in your life. It didn't look like anything spectacular. It had badger skins on it. It looked like any tent you would find anywhere in the Middle East. 
You didn't walk in there and, oh, there's the, there's the tabernacle. You, it looked like any ordinary broken down tent with skins on it from badgers to raccoons to squirrels to whatever. And if you're looking for the glory on the outside, you would never find it. Because in the tabernacle, what the glory was was not on the outside, it what was on the inside. And what is on the inside of those seven pieces of furniture back there that represent the ministry in this church. My point is this. The first 40 years is a picture of this church right now. When David shows up, he wipes out the enemies. Second coming of Christ. When Solomon shows up, it's a picture of the millennium. What you got wrong, pal, is you got your church in the millennium now when it ought to be looking like a piece of badger skin and you got it missed it over here. Now that's the Bible. Don't like it? Rip it out. But that's what happens today. I don't care what the Bible says. I want my big church. I know you do. You're stuck on this aspect of, of how that it, it's sight and sound. It doesn't matter that the Bible shows you that 40 years when that church wandered. And right now, we're wandering. And we are in the wilderness of sin. The glory about this church is not some spectacular edifice on the outside, ringing bells, big smoke steeples, and all of those things, but all the stuff. What makes it precious is simply this. Do you have the living Word of God? Thank you for both of you. That's the problem today. Hey, when Christ came down, he was God. But the outside appearance was a common man. How we get it so screwed up. How we can get so far from the Bible. The answer, my friend, no comparison. Now the second thing, not walking in craftiness. Churches today have gone the way of the world. No different from the world. And the church of Jesus Christ has lost all spiritual power. Even the unsaved people see it. I was watching a news broadcast by unsaved people, and they were talking about the state of America and how religion and conservatism and all the, the evangelicals fit into it. And every one of them said, every one of them said that America is now in a post-Christian era. And boy, they are true. They trade to do. Ministry today is big business. The past, I'm going to give you another one now. I mean, you figure out the last one. I didn't ask my question because I want to make sure I get all this in here. Uh, you can write me a note. Just put your name on it. Uh, now, I got another question for you. Ministry today is big business. Passions are likened to CEOs. We have mega staffs like corporations do. I got on a church website here a couple of this week just as I was wanting to see what it was all about and keep myself up to date here, and I, I couldn't believe it. Pe personal assistance to every, for every pastor. I found that we have in churches today in this city executive pastors, senior pastors. We have executive assistants. We have an, a managing an executive pastor. We have an, ex we have an administrative assistant pastor. We have an, ex an, we have a, a, an executive director. Everybody's got a title. Now, may I ask you a question? Now, this is just me. In the book of Acts, in the Bible, they had pastors, deacons, elders. How did we get from there to that? Now, maybe that doesn't bother you. 
It bothers me. And I don't care. I'm just trying to show you what's real and what isn't. Christianity is so far from the Bible, it's unbelievable. It's walking in craftiness versus walking in the light as he is in the light. We have big screen TVs now, so you don't have to bring your Bible. We have big screen TVs with songs on them, so you don't have to memorize the songs. And now we've got new words, you see. It's neo-evangelicalism. It's right down the line. It's situation ethics. It's right down to the thing that the end justifies the mean. Now we have contemporary services. Now we have also traditional services. The contemporary is like the world. The traditional is like the old days. And then if you can't make up your mind, a new one is now blended services. We got a little bit of both. Hey, I'll tell you one thing this church will never do. It'll never cater to your wants. It'll never cater to what you want in the flesh. Somebody said, I saw it in the paper the other day, go to the church of your choice. Don't ever do that. Don't ever go to the church of your choice. Go to the church that God's choice. And find out what that is. But I'll tell you what. That's exactly what we've done. We're catering now to everybody's wants. Well, I don't like hard preaching. Well, we'll give you a contemporary service. Well, I don't like that missy mashed up. We still have a traditional service for you. Well, I kind of like both. No problem. We have a blended service. (laughs) Only time I ever drank anything that was blended, I got the worst case of diarrhea I ever had in my life. And then we have the hidden agendas to fulfill the lust of the pastor. To build the biggest and the best. Oh, don't tell me about it. I've been in this business for 40 plus years. I've seen the rivalry between churches. I remember when Jerry Falwell was the big dog down in Lynchburg. And he redid his auditorium. And he had it all the same colors. And it was beautiful with a pulpit. Every church, anybody, church at all, that always mimicked their auditorium after Jerry Falwell. Come on, I've seen it. I know exactly how it works. Uh, The end justifies me. You know there's a large church in Kansas City right now, right now as we speak, that are holding church service this morning, that the way they reach people is by a gambling ministry? On one night of the week, am I lying? On one night of the week, going to get better yet, aren't we, huh? One night of the week, they bring in their, their poker tables. It's all based on celebrity poker. And they all sit around 40, 50, 60, 100 poker tables. Do you imagine what the guy at the poker place must have thought when he saw the invoice from a church for poker tables? <laughs> they set them up in a gymnasium and they play poker. And if you win, if you win, you get to donate your money to your favorite ministry. Now, that's on the outside. And then they have the little poker things all in their home. And when they win there, they keep the money. And the beer flows. And these are pastors. This is a church where the pastor get up and said, look, senior pastor, CEO, he said, look, if you people have a problem with the pastoral staff drinking, social drinking, let me tell you something, it's no different than you playing video games. I had a couple come in to see me, left that church, said, we got tired of taking our kids to restaurants and have to explain why we saw the pastor there drinking. One of the gals were out with, left that church, uh, was out with a group before they, she left, and she went over there, and they were going to Applebee's before, and they, three of the ladies ordered margaritas. And she says, are you drinking margaritas? She says, yeah, I don't have to teach the Bible tonight. <laughs> the end, just of, what are you laughing at? That's the pragmatic approach. That church is, right now in Kansas City, runs probably 3,500 people. And now they added a new ministry. You know what it is now? May I tell them? It's a beer-tasting Ministry. 
I don't know why you're upset. Why are you looking at me that way? I'm the one that told you, when you go down that philosophical road at the end, justify it to me, where do you stop it? Where do you say the line stops here? So they all go to people's houses, they bring in different kinds of beer. And they all taste them. And take a little beer here. Somebody's got the word spirits confused in the Bible. You tell me. You tell me. Slick, professional, big buildings and churches all coming down. And now we don't even call it. We don't even call it a church anymore. We don't even call the church. You know what we call it now? It's not church. It's not a church building. It's not church property. It's what now? It's a campus. Now you show me anything at all that has any semblance of what the Bible says that I'm doing. You show me, I'll reverse my process and we'll have a beer tasting party tonight. What makes a church is not the building that you have. It's the book that you preach. And may I remind you of uh, Revelation chapter 3 verse 17. Here it is today. The great passage on the church today. He says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor, blind and naked. There's the church, because thou sayest, I am rich, you bet you are. I'm increased with goods, you certainly are. I have need of nothing. And knowest not that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. You ever analyze those words, brother? You better analyze them. Wretched. This church today is racked with sin. Miserable. God's people are defeated. They're unhappy. They're unfulfilled. Poor, spiritually bankrupt, blind, spiritually blind, and naked. The judgment seat of Christ is coming. Now, you want the counseling ministry? You want to get into counseling ministry? All right, look at verse 18. Here comes your counseling ministry. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. That thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed. And not the shame of thy nakedness. Do not appear and anoint thine eyes with I salve that thou see. You realize that that vice right there would solve every problem every Christian has got on this planet if they just do it? You're either going to pay the price for him and that's gold, or you're going to pay the price for your own stupidity and indifference to the word of God. It's your choice, life's choices. Then the third thing. Oh, boy. Nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, I'm glad we're out of time. I could cut this down really good. Now, if there's anything that has killed the church today and the ministry and ministers, it's their attitude toward the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the Word of God, which you heard of us, you receive it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. It's a simple fact. Either we have the Word of God or we don't. The fact, either you believe you have the Word of God and it'll work in you or you don't have it, it won't work. Next week, I'm going to take, in conjunction with this, I'm going to take next week and I'm going to teach you, I talked about this Thursday night, I'm going to teach you the seven things you lose when you lose your Bible. It'll help put it into perspective. 
My position is simply this. The King James Bible is the absolute, perfect, infallible Word of God preserved in the way God wants us to have it all the way down through history, and I make no apologies for it. Amen. That's where I'm at with it. Amen. And I'll tell you right now, all other Bibles on this planet are nothing more a replacement Bible by the devil to put the devil's Bible in God's church. Like it or not, that's where I'm at with it. I told you I'll embarrass you. Amen. I'll embarrass the fire out of you. It never ceases to amaze me how blinded God's people are. The Bible tells us the devil has a church, Revelation 17. The Bible tells us the devil uh, has, a, has, a, has a ministry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. The Bible tells us the devil has children, John chapter 8, verse 44. The Bible tells us the, Bible has a, uh, the devil has an unholy spirit, Revelation 12, 13. The Bible tells us the devil has angels, Jude 6. And the Bible tells us the devil has a counterfeit trinity, Revelation chapter 12 and 13. So why on God's earth would he not have a counterfeit Bible? I remember when I studied church history, I, I, I studied a lot of the uh, guys that are taught in all the Bible colleges. One of them was Philip Schaff. He wrote like nine volumes on church history. Another one was a guy by the name of Newell. Another one was a guy by the name of Carnes. And uh, uh, Erdemus had, had one out too on church history. And the thing that struck him about all of them, and there was some good stuff in it, but the thing that nobody ever spoke about the devil in church history. It was like when the devil came to church history and writing the theory of church history and what was going on, that what God was doing, it was like the devil died. You think the devil just took a, a, a vacation, a sabbatical from the church history? You think when it came to the Bible, he forgot about the Bible, the most powerful thing in this world that will transform your life? You think he just gave that up and said, oops, <laughs> I forgot about that. You're out of your mind. The greatest, most dishonest thing about pastors and teachers and ministry and Sunday school teachers can do in God's church is to use the devil's Bible. And I say that right on the money. Right on the money. And I'll say something else. 99% of the pastors teaching in the town today and pulpits right now as we speak are using the wrong Bible. We had a big church in Kansas City here four or five years ago that uh, used to believe the King James Bible, and now they don't believe it anymore. And the pastor still gets up in the pulpit, and he says how much he loves it. He's lying through his teeth. He'd dump that book if he could, but he can't dump it. They had some guy in there one time with about 2,500 people, and he got up there. He knew what the church's history was, and he knew what they were trying to do. And he got up there and made a cute little remark <clears throat> that in front of the whole congregation, before he preached, waving his Bible back and forth, saying, I want you to know I am NIV positive. Like, you know, AIDS, only NIV. I'm NIV positive. Yeah, you are, because AIDS always affects the blood, and the book you got took all the Christ blood out of it anyhow. You, you are. Oh, I almost said a bad word there. I almost got the tongue. If I did, would you forgive me? If you will, I'll go back and say it so I keep the record straight. <laughs> hey, the rest of them use the King James Bible from the pulpit. They talk about how they love it, but never take a stand against it and teach the others. The other, the rest of the crowd, the rest of the crowd pulls off the second greatest trick that the devil ever pulled for stupid Christians, and that's your new King James Bible. You see, you don't have the guts to go the whole distance and say, I'm an apostate. So you try to find a difference in the middle, and then you say, well, we preach out of the new King James. And then your people say, when you're asked by you people, well, my pastor uses the King James. No, he doesn't. He uses the King James Bible chains in over 100,000 places. I'll tell you what, I'll sit down with yours and mine, I'll show you that it 22 emissions out of that thing to take hell out, 23 out of the blood, 66, the Lord is God, and I mean, words taken out. You'll never find the word devils, you'll never find the word damnation, you'll never find the word Jehovah. They're gone! And it weakens everything and somebody gets up, I'll tell you what, I'm just telling you, if you ever get to be a pastor, if you ever get to be a pastor, these guys are crooks, and they're handling the word of God deceitfully. Imagine telling your people those 
pieces of godless trash or the word of God and pretending that it's all okay and using your position of influence as a pastor to deceive your people. And I'll tell you what, maybe you're not doing it on purpose, but I'll tell you this, it's one or the other. You're either there so absolutely crooked as a dog's hind leg and you're probably so crooked you got to screw your socks on in the morning. You're either absolutely the biggest crook that ever walked this planet and with all the wrong motive and you're some kind of Christian gangster or you're so incredibly stupid when it comes to how you got your Bible, the manuscript ever that it came from, and you just bought what somebody else told you. Either way, you got no business pastoring a church. Now, I'm not speaking out of some novice. I'm speaking out as a man that's been in the ministry for 45 plus years. This is not my first rodeo. My grandmother used to say I wasn't born yesterday and I wasn't born last night either. Either way, at the judgment seat of Christ, it's going to be a barn bird. A guy told me one time, he says, you know what? He says, you know how much damage you're doing to Christianity by preaching the King James Bible is the Word of God? You know how foolish you are? And he says, you know what? You know how foolish you are that, that God, uh, you're up there talking, telling your people that they got a perfect Bible when we all know we don't? I said, you know what? I'll tell you something, pal. I'd rather preach it was the Word of God and find out it wasn't than preach it wasn't the Word of God and find out it was. Imagine Bob Elick Stanner standing at the judgment seat of Christ. God says, well, Bob, I'll tell you what, I'm really upset with you. What about, Lord? Well, I'll tell you what, you, you led those people astray. How dare you tell those people that I was an absolute God and could preserve a book? How dare you tell those people I could be God, could write a perfect book and preserve it down there? How dare you tell these people that I could write a book that wasn't perfect? I wrote a book that had, that had mistakes in it. What's the matter with you? Don't you know I wrote a book with all, my Bible's got all kinds of misconceptions in it and mistakes in it. It's not right. Don't you know? Why would you do that? I'll say, Lord, I'll never do it again. I'll never tell anybody you're the God of God You can keep a book and preserve it and write it and give it to man. I, I, won't, I, I don't know where I got that from, Lord. I just will never do it again. Well, you better not. <laughs> Idiots. Absolutely idiots. And remember, my friend, either way, the judgment seat of Christ is going to be a four-alarm fire. The judgment seat of Christ will not be about what you knew or what you didn't know. It'll be about what you could have found out, but you were too stinking lazy to find it out. Now, he says three things here. Renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty. Not walking in craftiness. Nor handling the word of God deceitfully. You want to know how this thing really works? I've never given you this. You need to hear this. And this is worth five minutes of your time, which I'll stretch into ten. <clears throat> you need to understand the position you're up against. Now, I teach and preach that the Bible that you've got in your hand, the King James 1611 authorized version, inspired perfect word of God, which preserved down through the history of the true church all the way from Antioch, which you got right now. I know it's in various forms and things. I could go through all that. We're not here to study manuscript evidence. You get church history, we went through it. But here's their position. They don't believe that you can have a Bible that's perfect. Here's what they believe. Now, now, you tell me if there's something wrong with me or not, or there's something wrong with them. I'll be you the judge. If you think there's something wrong with me when I'm done, then I'll quit. I'll go back to doing whatever I did before. I was killing people, so watch out. <laughs> now, here's the bottom line. They say that the true Word of God, the absolute perfect Word of God, is only found in the original manuscripts, Greek and Hebrew. And that if you really want to know the Bible and you really want to have a perfect Bible, you've got to study Greek and you've got to study Hebrew and you only get it from the original manuscripts. Now, let me pause there for a moment. First of all, Greek and Hebrew are both dead languages. Nobody speaks them anymore. The Greek that they speak in Greece is not the Greek of the, of the Bible time. 
and uh, Hebrew uh, is only, uh, only in, in Israel. Nobody else bothers with it. But the bottom line is simply this. Now, if that's true, nobody's ever had the original manuscripts. I had a guy preaching one time, and he was saying, we believe, and he didn't believe it at all. He was up there preaching, and he says, making a point. And he says, we believe the Bible's the absolute perfect word of God. He was waving a King James Bible. And I was dumb back then. I went up to him afterwards, and I said, brother, I said, I really enjoyed your message. Well, thank you, young man. Uh, and I tell you what, I didn't know that you believed the King James Bible was the word of God. And he said, well, I, I don't. And I said, well, wait a minute. And I said, you got a King James Bible? Yeah, I preach out of it. Well, you were waving it up there saying, we believe the Bible's the absolute perfect word of God. And he said, oh, I wasn't talking about this Bible. He said, I was talking about the original manuscripts. I said, don't you think that's a little dishonest for the people out there that when you're waving this Bible back saying you believe the word of God, but really you don't believe it's this Bible's the word of God? This conversation was terminated at that point. <laughs> because the bottom line is he didn't believe this was the word of God any more than uh, anybody else does today. And he wanted to believe that the, the Word of God is in the original manuscript. Well, you know what the word Bible means? The Bible means books. Now, first of all, there's nobody on the planet that has ever had the original manuscripts. Nobody. The original manuscripts are nowhere on planet Earth. You think that Paul had the original books that Moses wrote? Do you really? You thought he had the, You think Moses... Uh, you think... Uh, you think that uh, David had the original things that, uh, uh, that Moses wrote? You think that Paul had the original what Ezra and Nehemiah wrote? I mean, when you go to the book of Jeremiah, you realize that there was original Jeremiah, and then that got thrown in the fire, and there was another Jeremiah that got thrown in the river, and there was another Jeremiah, and it got, when it got through, and none of them matched. Now, here's your issue. You tell me. I don't know. If the Bible's the absolute perfect word only in the original manuscripts, and the Bible means books, there was never a time when all the original manuscripts were ever in one book. So when you're talking about a book called the Bible that is perfect, you're talking about a book that never existed, no one has ever read on planet Earth, and it could never exist because the manuscripts are nowhere to be found and never in a book, and nobody ever saw them or read them. Now, does that not bother you a little bit? Help me. Does that not bother you a little bit? Yes. And then they say that I'm an idiot. Until they sit down with me. I thought it was hilarious one time about four or five years ago. I don't remember who did it, but it was just a bunch of guys there. And one of, somebody had long shorts playing basketball or blah, blah, I forget what we were doing. And someone, the clowns ran up and, and it was just a bunch of guys there. And reached up, it was real baggy, and, and pulled his shorts down. You know, everybody had a laugh at it. I thought to myself, that's exactly what I do with pastors. <laughs> you may fool your people and you may hiss to this tape and get up and lamb at me behind the scenes but I'll tell you one thing you'll never do big boy and I'll give you an hour on Thursday night anytime you want to come I'll put you on first but you won't come you won't come because you're a coward you won't come because you're stupid you won't come because you don't even know why you believe what you believe. You bought into a system. You have nothing to compare it with. You like to run around and tell everybody who's right and who's wrong and talk about heretics and talk about who's this and who's a cult and all that. But you ain't got the guts God gave a goose to come in here and sit down and open up a Bible in front of these people and go toe-to-toe -to -toe and find out who's right and who's wrong. 
We'll do it like the old days. You put your church title on it, I'll put my church title on it, the winner gets to take the church. And if somebody called me this afternoon and said, we're going to take you up Thursday night, you think I'd lose a wink of sleep over it? I know these guys. I've been around these guys 40 years. I know exactly how they think. I know exactly how they operate. I know exactly their motive. Renouncing the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Next week, I'm going to bring you through and show you the seven things you lose when you lose your Bible. Then I'm going to come back and talk about the practical side of it. So, in light of all this, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, let me say this. And please understand this. This church will stand on the book. We'll believe it. We'll preach it. And we'll teach you how to believe it and know your history and to know where you got it from and know why it is the absolute perfect Word of God. And we will make no apologies for that. Jesus may come in my lifetime or He may not. But either way, I'll leave somebody here who will pick up the mantle like Elisha after Elijah to keep the book alive in a dead Christian world. For I say this to you, my friend, with this eye closed, all down through the history of the Bible. And obviously you know nothing about history. All down through the history of the church. And you know nothing about the church. All down through the history of Bible Christianity. You probably certainly know nothing about that either. No matter how dark it got. And today it is dark. I could guarantee you we are in another dark ages. I guarantee you. There was a dark ages before God gave us his word. And there's a dark ages intellectually now before God gives us his word. Uh, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And all down through the history of the Bible, the church and Christianity, no matter how dark it got, God always had somebody, some little insignificant guy, somebody who never was somebody who was anybody big, who held up that light in the midst of the darkness. And my advice to you in all that you do, my advice to you in all that you do is to make yourself that man who stands up with that light. Because without you, Kevin would be right. It'll just keep going and going and going and there'll be nobody that can give the comparison. That thing in Haggai is one of the greatest things that you'll see and understand why things are the way they are today and why pastors, Christians, ministers have no idea of what the real thing is. We are now in a pragmatic pragmatism that the end justifies the means. The bigger and the better, the more glorious it is, the more God is pleased. And yet that Bible tells you in that tabernacle wandering through the wilderness, you couldn't tell it from any other tent that was pitched. The glory was what was on the inside. And what's on the inside represents this book. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.